Chapter 30, The Heart of the Pentagram Exiting Cowper's shop, Lacose crosses the traffic heading for the watching Brother of Shadow. I go with him. I would help, but with two raised fingers, Lacose indicates he doesn't need any assistance. Instead, he greets the brother like he's his best friend, puts his arm around the man and walks him into the alley opposite. The man struggles, but Lacose is strong, and there in the shadows his knife goes snicker-snack, nice and quiet. One hand over his mouth, the first flash of steel is bright, the second stained with dark hybrid blood. Then it's done. I think the alley is a bad place for the Brothers of Shadow. Lacose returns. Dad avoided a nasty reputation loss. You're good at that. I know. British Museum, then. Where exactly in the museum do you think the portal is? At its roots. I take that to mean in the basement. So how do we get there? Not by the front door, that's for sure. I wait for enlightenment. Then he says, there's a way in from the British Museum tube station. How do you know this? Guild knowledge. I trust him implicitly by now, so I just follow as we thread our way through the London streets. I notice the air is getting misty, and soon a fog is developing. The dampness of the river rolling up and meeting the outpouring of a million smoky chimneys. As the temperature drops, people heap coal on their fires and the fog intensifies. We're walking along High Holborn now. I know Lacose is the expert, but I'm pretty sure we could have just cut up to the British Museum. When I mention this, he says, I want to wait until later. Fewer people to bother us about our business. The fog thickens. I check my wiki. Pea soup fog, or pea super, was the name given to the deadly London smogs composed of soot and sulphur dioxide caused by the burning of coal in homes and factories, combined with the particular weather conditions. London particulars of pea soup fogs killed hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the 19th and early 20th centuries until the Clean Air Act of the 1950s. Even though it's still daylight, it's hard to see, and pedestrians passing by become ghostly silhouettes, while their footfalls echo on the street like a thousand closing doors. There is no sky, only thickening grey. Night will come before the day is dead. We sit in a pub in Longacre called the Masonic Arms. We're still killing time before we can get the tube station from High Holborn and travel one stop down the central line to the British Museum underground station. We sit in a snug, and Lacose checks his gun. I think it's a bit open, but when it seems okay, I take both my pistols out and place them on the table. I take time to check and load. Then a glass collector comes and sees both. You're observed breaking the law, minus ten reputation. I didn't really need that. I sit tense, wondering if the NPC will call the police. Lacose suddenly drains his glass. The museum should be closed, let's go. We walk through the fog-bound streets. The whole world seems closed in and I hear my feet on the damp pavement. Lacose is striding ahead, smoking again. I wonder if he's nervous. Will he be guarded? He nods. We're walking along the streets with the fog and a police officer looms from nowhere. He stops, eyeing me as if he knows me from somewhere. I wonder what he wants. Then I remember my reputation is now only five out of a hundred. He says, Here, I want a word with you. Run, Lacose says. The policeman blows his whistle that shrills through the foggy street, and we're hearing it down Holborn in the mist. My exertion meter climbs up into the amber. I hear the feet of the copper behind us. The exertion meter hits the red, and I get a message. Minus ten percent movement penalty. I feel as if I've got weights attached to my feet. 
Lacoste says, movement penalty. Yes, me too. Let me shoot him. No, geez, that'll just make things worse. It'll be worse if the bastard catches us. Him and his copper mates who are bound to be flooding the area now he's blown his whistle. Here, hang on, in this alley. Lacoste follows me into the alley. The fog is thick. I hear the copper behind us, his feet echoing in the foggy air. What? Lacoste says. I've got this spell. I learned invisibility ages ago and never used it. I cast it on him and he disappears, then on myself. It only lasts twenty seconds. It's low level. But twenty seconds is long enough. By the time we're visible again, the police officer is way past us. My exertion meter is nicely back in the green. Good thinking, Adam, Lacoste says, though we could just have shot him. It takes me a second to realise he's joking. I kind of like him after all. Long enough now, he says. We set off strolling through the foggy streets like two gentlemen off to their club. If the police see us again, they'll act on our low reputation. But fortunately, our London Bobby friend is nowhere around. Then we're at High Hoban Station. We go down the steps into a warm fog of electric light. The fog is banished from here as commuters make their homeward journeys, down the steps and along tiled corridors until we arrive at the central line westbound platform. Rats play down below the shining silver rails, and men and women in raincoats stand beside us eagerly awaiting their ride home. First a rush of warm air, then rumbling, and train lights appear from the tunnel to the east. Instinctively I step back. The train arrives. Someone opens the doors, as keen to leave as we are to get on. We don't sit. We stand by the doors, steadying ourselves on leather straps as the train rocks and rolls. Then the brakes kick in, and the train slows before coming to a halt at the British Museum. We step off, and I look to Lucose who points without speaking along the platform. I follow. He stops before an entrance I would have missed. It's dirty and dark, and looks like a service entrance. A metal grill secured with an old-looking padlock locks it. Lacoste pulls shears from his inventory. That reminds me of Miranda, and I feel a flush of emotion, then feel ridiculous. We need to get on. He clips off the lock, which falls with a clump to the floor. Come on. We enter the dark tunnel. I've got both guns out now, and I see he has his shotgun ready. I get that itch in the middle of my head again that tells me I'm going to need some soma at some point. Lacoste says over his shoulder, this tunnel was built in 1916, so if the Germans ever invaded, they could secretly ship out the artefacts from the museum. The tunnel runs for about 200 yards and it's dark, so I pull out my torch to light our way. There's another padlock door at the far end of the tunnel, which Lacoste deals with in the same manner he did the first. There may be brothers here, so be careful. I nod and we go quiet. It looks like we're in the underground storage area of the museum. It has far more artefacts than it can ever display, Lacoste says helpfully. There are emergency lights here, so I switch off my torch. It's dim, but not totally dark. We walk through Egyptian statues, some draped in cloths. Silence pervades the place until we are through three rooms and the artefacts here look Greek and Roman. Then I hear a faint chanting. What's that? Lacoste says the way down to the portal to Leng is on the floor below. The way will be guarded. We edge forward until we're lurking in the shadows of a room that looks out onto a thoroughfare. I see brown-robed characters, hoods up, coming from the other direction and filing in from the left and heading down the corridor. I stick my head out when there's no one there and I see a dark door with guards. This is the dark door that leads to the temple's heart. I look round, puzzled. Lacoste shrugs. There must be a ceremony tonight. There shouldn't be so many of them normally. Bad timing. Yeah. 
but we've got to get through. We could come back tomorrow or later. I remember Miranda. Each day I don't bring her out of there, the more she transforms into something beyond imagination. No, let's try to get in tonight. We need to get to Leng. He nods. You're right. Anyway, what's the worst that can happen? He's a funny guy, I say. Let's not find out. As we stand there in the dark, I can feel the atmosphere of the place. This is the centre of the unholy pentagram that focuses its occult power on London's heart. I can almost feel the air sizzling. Three bottles of the elixir are listed in my inventory. I know Lacoze wants us to wake all the warm ones to deprive Azathoth of his dinner, but my focus has always been Miranda. I dug back into the shadows of the storeroom. I whisper, how are we going to get past the guards? First, find two cultists. There'll be more along any minute. He sees my hand on my pistol and he puts his hand on my wrists. Knives, he says. Less noise. Then some come our way, handkerchiefs over their mouths, hiding their needle teeth. Their handkerchief face masks flutter in their bad breath. They're wearing brown cassocks like twisted monks. I'm looking out, but I haven't been careful enough and they see me with their jellyfish eyes. This is all we need. If they yell for help, we're fried. I step back into the darkness and they come after me. They think there's just me and maybe I'm a burglar, easy prey. Either way, they don't feel the need to call to help. Either way, they don't feel the need to call for help. Lacoze's knife jabs out at them, first one, then the other. I grab at the first and smother his mouth with my hand. I feel his saliva and hear the cough of blood. Then he goes down. The other is already dead. Lacoze grunts and picks at the first one with his toe, rolling him over with his foot and taking off his brown hooded robe. There's blood on it, I say as much. Lacoze grimaces. It's the kind of business they're in, they expect bloody clothes. Get yours. I kneel and peel the robe off mine. I start back as his body is exposed and blind worms uncoil between his ribs. I don't lose sanity, even though he's more monster than man. I must be getting used to it. I must be getting used to it. I put on the brown robe. Lacoze, similarly hooded, leans forward and pulls the edge of my hood down to cover my eyes. Now the kerchief, he says. Really? I don't want to put that thing on my mouth. It's been so near the needle teeth of that thing breathing in and out on it. They all have them, he says. We've got to. Reluctantly, I stoop again and untie the kerchief from behind the brother's neck, almost heaving my guts. Its spindle teeth are revealed, draped in a film of cold drool. Lacoze shows no such qualms and quickly ties the brown kerchief behind his head. With it on, he looks every inch the brother of shadow. His voice is muffled. Let's go. We step out into the corridor. The robe is sticky with congealing blood by my right hand. I keep the hand unnaturally away from it until I realise it looks odd, so I let it fall on the damp cloth. My fingers are red-stained and tacky now against the rough wool. The dark door looms before us. This could go very wrong. There are two guards. We just keep walking. A hooded brother steps to bar our way and my heart leaps. Then he says, Aya Azathoth. I say back, Aya Azathoth. It works, and Lacoze mutters the same. Then we're through. We follow the stream of brothers coming in from the street. It looks like tonight's going to be a big night. So, the portal's in here. I try to keep my voice down. Lacoze nods in his brown hood. You know where? He shakes his head. We follow the brown-robed brothers ahead of us. We look just like them, except our robes are wet with blood. The light's so poor that it's difficult to see. 
In silence, we make our way up the long corridor to the central diamond-shaped hall. There's a trapdoor open in the middle. It looks like it's not open all the time. A crowd is gathered, and all around they chatter in their black speech, barking like desert jackals, jabbering like carrion birds. We follow them to the open trapdoor, then down the creaking wooden staircase. It's darker here. The way is lit by burning torches in sconces. The dancing flames conjure the atmosphere. I feel myself shiver, though it's not cold. Even the brothers cease their chattering as we walk, their voices quietening in awe as we approach their sanctuary. Then we go down further, down a spiral staircase until we find ourselves in a large stone chamber. Flickering torches multiply the hooded heads of the assembled brothers. They stand in concentric rings, awaiting something. Huge basalt blocks form the chamber's walls. They must be forty feet high, but the walls are featureless. The only thing in there is a huge statue, a representation of a non-human thing. It has no limbs or face and is carved of smooth black rock. Looking at it makes me dizzy, as if some dreaded atmosphere leaks from it and percolates from the ground around us. Behind the statue is a tall wooden screen that blocks off the far end of the room. The screen doesn't go wall to wall, and there are gaps at each end. Then, cymbals crash, and their sound reverberates away to a dying buzz. This is the call to silence. The brothers stand, straightening themselves, ending any conversations that might have lingered. The cymbals ring again. Their crashing hurts my ears. Then a tall, stooped figure emerges from the right gap at the end of the wooden screen. It must be fifteen feet tall and bulky. It wears a robe of the same material as the others, but it's huge. The cloth moves unnaturally, as if the creature's body is distorted and warped beneath it. When the figure comes to the centre, standing before the tall amorphous stone, total silence descends, until symbols in the hands of the acolytes that flank it clash again. One of the brothers, a go-between, speaks, Thee I invoke, the empty one. The brothers around us mutter a response, but I can't hear it, so I can't copy it. I grunt, hoping my ignorance of the correct words will go unnoticed. I look around at the crowd and imagine my life as a bulge in the wall, giving birth to some foul lava that will eat me from the inside out. The go-between priest calls out again, Thee that didst create hell and very hell, Thee that didst create night and very night, Thee that scorned the light, Thou art Azathoth, whom no man hath seen at any time. And the brothers around me go crazy in their response, crying, Azathoth! Azathoth! The priest motions for silence, and the brothers fall quiet. Thou art formless and without mind, thou art empty and without soul, hungry beyond feeling, void beyond filling, thou art Azathoth. They all chant again, and Lacoze leans in, move towards the edge, we're going round the screen. We begin to edge right, but doing it slowly so the brothers in their ecstasy don't notice. They shout and call out in rapture. I need to get past them. I almost forget stealth that I push more to get past these vile bastards. Thou didst produce the seed and the fruit. Thou art the rot within the seed, the pus within the wound. And we're nearly there. The atmosphere is getting more and more charged. The brothers of shadow are crying out in their rapture, greeting the formless hunger of their god. My head's swimming. Lacoze grabs me. Come on! We're at the edge of the crowd. Thank God I want to kill them all. I want to turn and empty my guns into them. But we have to move. Then, 
Out of the corner of my eye, I see the tall, cowled figure finally straighten up. As the priest reaches the culmination of his blasphemous liturgy, the figure stands straight and casts off its hood. It is Mervyn Gerdrock, but now twenty feet high. His face, though recognisable, is pierced by the writhing tentacles of chaos. His skull is open and his brain revealed and covered in sickly fur-like mould on a petri dish. Gerdrock has been infected by fungal organisms that run through him and give him a second skin. Worm-like parasites erupt from his body, hanging from his face, bloated and sucking the air. You observe something especially horrific, minus twenty sanity. His voice is like sickness itself. Disease pours from his mouth as he utters the words of damnation. I am risen. Finally our Lord Azathoth has given the gift of abomination. Man no more. I am disease. I am putrefaction. Look upon me and despair of your souls. The howling of the Brothers of Shadow rises to a crescendo but then muffles as we step behind the rude screen. I hear the tinkling and feel the ozone buzz of a portal. Here, in the guts of this temple, we find the portal to the dreamlands, the cursed and frigid plateau of Leng. I can't see it, but I know it's there. From the shadows, the queen emerges, three feet high, face sticky and shining like an embalmed child. She says, Can I interest you in my wares? Potions and magic goods? Transport to the dreamlands? But I don't need her potions, I've got my own. I hand Lacoze a small bottle whose contents gleam pearly white. I give him the small file that contains the returning potion as well. Then a brother comes around the screen and sees us. What the hell are you doing here? Lacoze looks at me. I think he's going to shoot the guy. I raise the pearly potion to my mouth. Drink, I say. <laughs> 